0: If you've got a Bible, uh, I want to encourage you to open up to Romans 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you've got a smartphone, you can download this really cool little app called the Bible app. And uh, in that, uh, if you go to more and events, uh, there will be an event there for Christ Community Church, and our sermon notes will be in there. Uh, we've got uh, a devotional reading plan that uh, we're going to work through in the coming week, and uh, all kinds of announcements and things to to jump into, so I encourage you uh, to check that out, um, but I also hope, little aside here, I also hope, man, we're going through the Book of Romans this year in 2019, if I could encourage you to do one thing, uh, it would be get you, a, get you a hard copy physical Bible and just watch how God teaches you through the Book of Romans this year, right, uh, take notes, like really get into that. And, uh, and watch how the Lord changes you, all right? So find Romans 1, and um, if you're new uh, or if you haven't been here in a couple weeks, let me kind of get you up to speed with what we're, we're doing here. Uh, we've, we talked about uh, in Romans 1 this idea for the year of being set apart by God, and um, we talked about that in January. In February, we're talking about this idea of living lies, and last week we opened this up by realizing that we are the living lies. Uh, we are the living lies. And yet in spite of that, like Christ saw our lies and he still chose to die for us. And so we challenged one another to stop covering up our, our lies. And uh, today, we want to take a little bit of a, a dive into how do we, we end up in this place where we are living lies? How do we get there? Um, and we want to be reminded of the goodness of God in that before next week we dive All the way down into these lies that we're living, Uh, and it's going to be messy because lies and sin are messy. And so, um, so that's kind of where we're at in this uh, this this series of living lies in this passage uh, here in Romans. So, uh, if you've got Romans, follow along with me. I'm going to read 18 through 23, uh, and then pray for our time together in the Word. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven. "...against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse." For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four footed animals, and reptiles. Let's pray. Father, we come to this place on a Sunday morning in Shelbyville, Kentucky. And we are grateful for the freedom to gather. We are grateful for the truth of your word. We are grateful to have something like your word that is without error, that is true, that is inspired by you to guide us, to bring light into our lives. Father, we're grateful for all those things because it's hard to live in our world. It's hard to live in a world where we see death happen too soon. We remember the Palmer family, and we pray that you comfort them. Father, it's hard to live in a world where we see brokenness and destruction. We see relationships that don't work, where we see homelessness and addiction and poverty. And Father, we, we, we try to make sense of it all, and so we need you. We need you to continue to reveal yourself to us so that we might be guided by the truth of your word and the truth of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and dwelling and revealing that to us. Spirit, we pray that you would reveal to us even more of that truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans 1. You may notice uh, this morning, if, uh, if you're a part of our Christ Community family, you may notice that I don't have my glasses on and this is the first time since college that I am not wearing glasses but I am wearing contacts. So uh, this week, uh, I was at basketball practice, coaching basketball practice, and challenging the guys to, to really you know, get physical and I had a blocking pad. One of the guys really took me up on that challenge, hits the pad, the glasses go flying, and this is what we have left. My poor glasses, broken. And here's this uh, beautiful plastic lens that was flying across the gym floor. And uh, of course, you know, the guys were very apologetic and I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, I'm tough. It's good. And I was good in the moment, it wasn't a big deal. They're just glasses, right? But over the next couple hours, I realized that I didn't just lose my glasses. I lost my ability to see. One of those is much greater than the other, right? Uh, and so uh, it was a fun afternoon of uh, coaching, driving. If you were on the roads, at, you know, one afternoon here in Shelbyville, God has given you grace already. You didn't know. Uh, you didn't run into me. And so, uh, man, it was, it was like it was very, I, I just hadn't done that in a long time, right? Like I broke my glasses a week, but I didn't just lose my glasses. I lost my ability to see. And I realized that that is a, an illustration, an example of what Paul is talking about here in Romans when he says we suppress the truth. Because when we suppress the truth, we don't just lose truth, we also become blind to the lies that we're living. And those two things are different, right? We lose sight of the truth and we become blind to the lies. That we're living. Verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does it mean to, to suppress the truth? Well, literally, it means to hold back or or to restrain the truth. The picture is that we know the truth, we know the truth about God, but in our unrighteousness, we hold it back. We know what's right, but we hold it back. When I was young, I, uh, I grew up on a farm. We had a black lab uh, named Zeke. Zeke was crazy. He was one of those dogs that you could see it in his eyes that in the right moment, he could destroy you. I mean, he, he was just one of those dogs. We loved him. He was our dog. He was chained under this big tree with his doghouse, and every time it stormed, we would hear Zeke barking furiously and then he would break his chain and so what do we do as good farmers we bought a bigger chain and we bought a bigger chain and we bought a bigger chain now here's the thing having a crazy dog that goes crazy in storms and having sheep on that same farm are not a good combination we knew that that was true but we thought that we could hold Zeke back If we just kept getting bigger chains. Until that night that we didn't, right? It was a terrible story. Big storm, Zeke gets loose. Multiple sheep are killed. Many sheep are injured. It wasn't good. But we knew the truth before it happened, right? It wasn't a surprise. We thought if we got a big enough chain that we could hold Zeke back, suppress him from hurting the sheep. But we couldn't. And here's the reality that that we don't want to talk about. We do the same thing with the truth of God. We know the truth. It is hardwired into us as humans who are created in the image of God. We read in this passage that we can see it in the things that God has made. But we try to hold back the truth, not only about our sin, but also about God. Because it kind of steps on our toes. We know the truth, but we suppress it. Verse 19, Paul goes on, he says, Since what can be known about God is evident, it's evident among them because God has shown it to them. Suppression of the truth, you see, it's this weird thing because it implies that we have a knowledge of the truth. When we suppress the truth, this sneaky thing happens where we become the definer of truth. When we concoct a story about why we were late for our appointment or why we missed the deadline for a payment, or why we need them to reduce our cable bill. When we make those stories up, we place ourselves in the position of defining the truth. The quote unquote truth is whatever the story is that we've made up, and in those moments we quietly remove God from that place of the one who is the definer of truth. But the problem is that God is truth, and he has clearly made known to us in creation that he is truth and that it is his truth. Verse 20 reminds us of that. It says, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. You see, when you become the definer of truth, you become your own God. And if that isn't scary enough, when you become your own God, you begin to search for the attributes of God that you can't find in yourself in other things. Think about that. When you place yourself in that seat of being the definer of truth and you become your own God, when you're the one who's deciding what is good and bad and right and wrong, when you're the one who is deciding that and and you place yourself there, then all of a sudden there's something inside of you because you're created in the image of God that when you can't find those good and true characteristics of God in yourself, you begin to look for them in other things, in all of the wrong places. There's two errors that that humanity makes in light of this verse, in light of verse 20. One is to say that, well, nothing is God. Nothing is truth. And, And of course, we know that as atheism, right? It's a suppression of the truth that is evident. Like, I just I just completely reject all of this. I suppress it to the point that it that can't be true, any of it. But on the other end of the spectrum, right, is idolatry. And that's the idea that, that anything can be God. That worshiping the creation is, is better than worshiping the creator. Many of us end up on this teeter-totter between those two, as opposed to just believing in the one true God. One commentary talked about idolatry in this way, and I think this becomes one of Satan's greatest lies in our times. It says this, In modern times, the Western world has outgrown crass idolatry. In other words, it's not like we have statues standing in our house anymore, right? But humanism has subtly injected the worship of humanity without the physical trappings. God is quietly ruled out, and the human spirit is placed on the throne. That's scary. Verse 22, Paul sums up the idea, claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see, Satan's lie on this journey, Satan's, one of his greatest lies on this journey is that you are wise. You know what's best. You can Figure this out. You've got this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a verse that may be familiar to some of you, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on whose understanding? Your own. Your own understanding. In all your ways know him, and he will make your paths straight to him. And we say all these things to say this, that this is the beauty of Of God's wrath? God's God's wrath? How is this the beauty of God's wrath? You see, God's wrath reminds us of our need to be rescued. God's wrath reminds us of our need to be rescued. What is God's wrath? And how could God's wrath be an attribute of a good God? How should we think about this wrath? Why would we want God's wrath to be revealed? I'm married to Caitlin. Caitlin is a dental hygienist. I've probably used this example before, but if you've heard it, just give me grace, and I'm going to use it again anyway. Early on in our relationship, she started doing this thing after meals where she would hold one hand up to her face and go like this. It's like, what are you doing? She was like, check my teeth. Is there any food in my teeth? So the first time she did it, and I I don't see anything. She's like, no, you really have to look. Like, you gotta you gotta and to this day, right? We go out to eat. Like she's gonna look at me and I gotta look. Now, if there is anything that I've learned, I have learned this. Do not say there is nothing in your teeth unless you are absolutely sure there is nothing. In her teeth. You want to talk about wrath? <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's a great person. <clears throat> but you can imagine Caitlin's feelings toward me if I don't tell her when there's something in her teeth, right? So we think about the wrath of God. I'm like, man, why, how, could, how could God's wrath be a good thing? Imagine with me for a minute our feelings towards God. If he never showed wrath towards our sin. Imagine if no one ever told you that your sin problem had a really big consequence. The eternal darkness of separation from God. What if God never let us know that the sin that creeps into our lives was was leading us to that dark and devastating eternity with Satan? I might be a little bit upset. (laughs) We would say that that doesn't seem fair or just or logical. So God's wrath, it reminds us of our need to be rescued. It lets us know that there's something in our teeth. But notice in the text how God's wrath is described. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, what? Godlessness and unrighteousness. You see, God's wrath isn't towards people. It's directed towards godlessness and, and people's unrighteousness, their, their sins. Wrath is, is God's passion against godlessness. When God begins to be cut out of a situation, he passionately tries to remind people that, that he is God and he is there. Wrath is, is passion against injustice. We wouldn't be content with a God who ignored injustice. We wrongly assume so often that the evil we see in our world is God's wrath. Wrath, though, is God's righteous response to that evil, to the godlessness and the unrighteousness. You see, we have such a small view of God's wrath. We forget that he is eternal, that that he knows the whole story. The wrath we experience in this life is, is child's play compared to the wrath of the next life. And what we find in Scripture is that he is graciously holding back his full wrath until the day of judgment. Romans 2, 5 reminds us of that. It says this, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. It's being stored up because he's holding it back, right? For yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. So I was thinking about some of these passages and how we end up in this place of darkness I was researching on this great thing called the internet, and I came across the idea of the aphotic zone. I've got a picture of the ocean here. The aphotic zone is 1,000 meters below the surface of the ocean. It's a little over 3,200 feet, all right? In the aphotic zone, it is complete darkness, complete darkness. At the midwater zone, which is like 200 meters, I think it's, I don't remember the exact conversion, 600 some feet, a little over two football fields. That's when light begins to be really sparse. Like in other words, you're you're probably not seeing much. Best I can tell, the furthest we've ever dove is about a thousand feet, human. Like the pressure just becomes pretty great after that. Uh, You can see down there all the way at the bottom, they've sent like little robots down almost 11,000 meters. I don't know what that is in feet, but it's a really long way. It's really dark, right? A really, really dark place. The light never changes. The light is always there at the surface. And so often, as we begin to see this, as we begin to suppress the truth, right? one lie that builds on another lie, that builds on another lie, that builds on another lie, we descend into this darkness, much like something falling into the ocean. And at some point, it's so dark that we we can't see the light. It's not that the light isn't there, but we can't see the light because we've descended into the lies that we're living Imagine sinking to the aphotic zone of life. It started with a quick dip into something you enjoy, and before you knew it, you couldn't see the way out. A sin that had just a little bit, just a little bit of your life ended up taking control, and before long, you felt like you needed it more than you needed God. Because you see, our sin has us destined for a dark and eternal wrath the wrath of God we experience in our lives reminds us of our need to be rescued. So if you can, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment being in that aphotic zone and all the lights just come on. All the lights just come on. All the sea creatures you would now see some of you picked it up pretty quickly like that's a scary thing. I do not want to think about what kind of sea creatures I see in the aphotic zone. Maybe it's God's grace that it's really dark in the aphotic zone. I don't know. But imagine all the lights coming on and the fear you would have and all the things that you're seeing and knowing that you have absolutely zero way to rescue yourself. You see that's God's wrath. It turns the lights on. It reminds us that there's a consequence, that, that when we are in darkness, there is only one way out, and it is the light of Christ. You would know in an instant that you had gotten yourself into something that you couldn't get yourself out of. First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 speaks about how Christ becomes our rescuer. It says, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, when the wrath of God reminds us of our need to be rescued and we realize that Christ rescues us, it is a great joy. We don't have to figure out how to get out of the ephotic zone because he takes us out and we get to join him outside the gates. What should we do? How do we stop living with the lies that, we've, that have gotten us to this place? How does that happen? Verse 21 shows us the trade that we must make. Verse 21, Paul writes, For though they knew God, right, because we can all know him. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. You see, what they didn't do is what we must do in our hope of not living as victim to our lives. We must give glory to God and show our gratitude. Give thanks to God every chance you get. Give thanks to God every chance you get. So, how do we do that? How do we glory in God's truth? You know, maybe we say, Oh, well, I'm, I'm grateful. I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. But how often do we speak that out loud? When we pray at meals, do we express our gratitude? Do we ask our family members at the end of the day, what can we be grateful to God for? Not just what are we grateful for, what can we be grateful to God for? Leaders, ask our followers, ask our teams, ask the people at our workplace, what can we be grateful to God for today? When we face difficulty, ask, what can we be grateful to God for? When we get caught in our lives, what can we be grateful to God for? You see, when you and I cultivate gratitude in light of God's wrath that reminds us of our need to be rescued, only then do we begin to realize that we don't even deserve the first ounce of grace that God gives to us. It's only when the wrath reminds us of how deep and dark we are stuck into our sin that we understand that everything we have is undeserved. We don't deserve the first step that God took towards us as sinful human beings. In the Jewish faith, they have a tradition to help them remember how God has rescued them. Right? If you're familiar with Scripture, uh, you would know this, and if not, it's okay. But uh, in the Jewish faith, right, that goes back to this idea of Exodus. The Jews were, were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them out of that place. And so they remember that with this thing called the, the Passover, and they, they do, one of the, the traditions that they have is called a Seder meal. And in this, this meal, it's typically a family thing. They go back and, and they remember how God rescued them from Egypt. And it reminds them to be grateful that, that God took the first steps to rescue them. And, and even that was undeserved. So families, they share in this meal together. And, and one of the traditions is this responsive reading that they do. And I'm going to ask the band to come back, and, and I'd like to ask you to join me uh, this morning in this Jewish tradition, and, and we're going to make it Christian. <laughs> All right? It's going to be fun. And we want to do this so that we might remember with gratitude how God has rescued you and I. <clears throat> so what they do is there's this repetitive Uh, thing that they do and it's like if God had done this but he hadn't done this and then somebody says it would have sufficed us in other words it would have been enough you see the idea here we're going to feel it in just a minute the idea is that man so often we just want more from God God, give me more. And certainly he wants to bless us and give us more. But too often we forget to be grateful for what he has already given to us. And in doing that, man, we are reminded of the grace of being rescued. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And the words in yellow, they're going to be a little repetitive, but I think you're going to appreciate it as we go through this and remember how God rescued us. Had he brought us out of Egypt but not executed judgments against the Egyptians it would have sufficed us. Had he executed judgments against them but not upon their gods it would have sufficed us. Had He executed judgments against their gods but not slain their firstborn, it would have sufficed us. Had He slain their firstborn but not given us their wealth, it would have sufficed us. Had He given us their wealth but not split the sea for us, it would have sufficed us. Had He split the sea for us but not led us through on dry land, it would have sufficed us." Had He led us through on dry land but not drowned our oppressors in it, it would have sufficed us. Had He not drowned our oppressors in it but but not provided for our needs in the desert for 40 years, it would have sufficed us. Had He provided for our needs in the desert for 40 years but not fed us manna, it would have sufficed us. Had He fed us manna but not given us the Sabbath, it would have sufficed us. Had he given us the Sabbath but not brought us close to Mount Sinai, it would have sufficed us. Had he brought us close to Mount Sinai but not given us the Law, it would have sufficed us. Had he given us the Law but not brought us into the Land of Israel, it would have sufficed us. Had he brought us into the Land of Israel but not built the Temple for us, it would have sufficed us. And it's at that point, in the Seder Passover meal, the Jews stop. Their hope is in a man-made temple, in works of people. But for those of us who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the story isn't over. And so would you join me? Had he built a temple for us, But not raised up prophets to speak of the coming Messiah, it would have sufficed us. Had He raised up prophets to speak of the coming Messiah, but not sent His one and only Son to be that Messiah, it would have sufficed us. Had He sent His one and only Son to be the Messiah, but the Son had not healed the sick and preached good news, it would have sufficed us. Had the Son healed the sick and preached good news, but not endured being wrongfully accused, convicted and tortured, it would have sufficed us. And had he endured being wrongfully accused, convicted, and tortured, but not been nailed to the cross, it would have sufficed us. Had he been nailed to the cross, but not submitted to death, it would have sufficed us. And had he submitted to death, but not rose again to new life three days later, it would have sufficed us. Had he risen again to new life three days later, but not been seen by numerous witnesses, it would have sufficed us. Had he been seen by numerous witnesses, but not returned to prepare a place for us in heaven, it would have sufficed us. And had he returned to prepare a place for us in heaven, but not gifted us with the Holy Spirit, it would have sufficed us. And had he gifted us with the Holy Spirit, but not promised to return and take those who believe to eternal glory with him, it would have sufficed us. You see, we don't deserve any of it. But he has given to us all of these things and so much more. All of these things. He is more than sufficient. He is more than sufficient. He is sufficient to rescue us from our sin that deserves the wrath of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. And my prayer this morning, Jesus, is that through the Spirit, you would help us to love you more, that we would fall deeply in love with you because everything that you've done for us is so undeserved. Because Father, we know that out of that love, you will walk with us, you will rescue us from the darkness that we live in today and bring us back to the light. But it starts with love and a relationship with you. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for sending your Son. Spirit, make those things alive in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.